Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 86 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is none other than my significant other, Jason Crandall. We asked for questions over the holiday. We asked if you had any questions you want Jason to answer. Turns out you had many questions, which is great. So I compiled them in a big, giant list. And unfortunately, we didn't get to all of them, but we got to a few, and we will continue to work through the ones that we feel are answerable in this format and in this time frame and all that jazz. I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Okay, here we go. Hey, Jason. Hey, Andrea. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I am excited. We are starting off 2018 by answering our listeners' questions. Yeah, me too. And hey, I want to congratulate you. 500 million downloads. (laughs) Is that, did I read that right? 500 million (laughs) downloads? (laughs) Oh, we should be making a lot of money. It was actually 590 million downloads. 500,000 downloads. But I'm so, no, it was 590,000, but I'm so oh, honest. That's great. I, I couldn't put 600,000. <laughs> oh, I totally, I would have rounded that up to 2 billion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, Thank you. thanks Thank for having you. me. So we have a few down dog related questions sure. that I thought I would throw at you. I think some of them you could probably answer uh-huh. fairly expeditiously. So yes. we'll just see. The first one is, when jumping forward from down dog, so jumping my feet to my hands at the okay. top of my mat, what is your opinion on the breath? I have a pretty strong bias towards jumping at the very end of the exhalation. Now, let me pause this and say that when I practiced Ashtanga yoga many moons ago, they do it on the inhalation. And David Swenson and Keno McGregor seem to be pretty good at jumping forward on the inhalation. (laughs) Right. So I think it can be done. I think it can be done uh, on either phase of the breath. The reason that I prefer jumping forward on the exhalation, actually right towards the finish of the exhalation, is because to me that's much more in rhythm with how the diaphragm is moving and how the abdominal contents are being displaced and how your core is being engaged. So when you are inhaling... The central tendon of the diaphragm is pulling downwards, and that is pressing the abdominal contents down and slightly forward. So to me, that is a more difficult time to jump. I jump into the expansiveness of my belly when I jump forward on the inhalation. Now, if you have a really good Bonda system in place, that's sort of irrelevant, but because you can maintain that core control on in-breath or out-breath. But... When you exhale, the central tendon of the diaphragm is pulling up, the circumference of the rib cage is decreasing, and the abdominal contents naturally swell back and slightly up. So there's a natural little hollowing or scooping of the abdominal contents on the exhalation, especially towards the end of the exhalation. And so that's when I like to make any jump. The other thing about this is... I have a really difficult time making a strong physical action on an inhalation without holding my breath for yeah, a moment. Yeah, me too. Me too. You know? Mm. So to me, and like in martial arts or something, you're striking on exhalations if you have the opportunity to. But in most situations, I'm going to do the sort of more explosive motion on an exhalation, especially when it has to do with hip and spinal flexion. When you're in down dog jumping forward, you're in hip and spinal flexion. Right. 
And so to me, that's just, it's a much more natural moment to jump is right at the very end of the exhalation. To be honest, I like to jump when the exhalation has pretty much completed itself and I'm on that natural exhalation retention. Mm -hmm. And then I like to land empty. So you land at the top of the mat on your feet and you're ready for that inhalation into Ardha Uttanasana. That's my preference. I can't help myself. I have to ask a question based on something you just said. Sure. Even though I'm trying to keep these concise. Because you qualified when the hips are in flexion, it makes me wonder what you think about the breath, like say in a drop back when the hips are in extension. It would be the same. You would, If you're doing a drop back, you would do the drop back on the course of the exhalation. I would no, no, this makes no sense to drop back on an inhalation. You know why? Because no one can inhale in that process. <laughs> That's the oh, other right, thing right, is right, you right. have to think yeah. about the what can your diaphragm and your ancillary respiratory muscles manage when you're in a transition? So if you're doing a really difficult thing or you're doing this big spinal extension, you're not – like you inhale into up dog because up dog's a really easy pose. You know what I mean? Relative to, to a standing drop back. But a standing drop back, you, you would exhale into. Okay. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Or you'd avoid drop backs at all costs. <laughs> I used to really love- I still love them. I actually love them. I, and I love to teach them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I only like having you drop me back, to be perfectly frank. I've never had any other good drop back, but- You want someone that knows how to do it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Yep. This person would like tips on, tips appreciated on, on stepping forward from down dog. Still unable to do this well after a year of practice. Yeah, totally. So I like that we have both of these. When I teach new students, this is one of the first things that I teach new students. I actually think that this is one of the most important technical components of a sun salutation that is often not taught and students struggle with for so long. So stepping forward from downward facing dog. If it is easy for you, it is easy for you, okay? But let's assume it's not easy for you. If it's not easy for you, then when you're stepping forward, your foot is not going far enough. Like that's always the problem. The challenge of stepping forward is to, is to get your lead foot, the first foot that you step with, all the way forward between the hands. And there's a couple situations where the foot is not going to get all the way there. One of the situations is restriction in the hips. And another one of the situation is elevation of the pelvis. If your hips are too low when you step forward and or if your hips are relatively tight when you step forward, the foot isn't going to be able to get all the way forward between the hands. It's going to stop shy. So in both of these situations, the best thing to do is to bring the opposite knee down first for just for a moment. So let's say I'm going to step forward with my right foot. I'm in downward facing dog. I want to step my right foot forward between the hands. Very briefly, bring the left knee to the floor and then step the right foot forward. You can even use your right hand to pull the right foot a little bit further forward. So when the hips are too low and or when the hips are restricted, this is the way to do it. The other thing to be honest is if the front body has a little bit of extra weight, 
because if the front body has a little bit of extra weight, then you're just running into yourself, you know? And so that stepping the foot forward, that hip or leg might be being blocked by the torso Mm -hmm. before it gets all the way forward. So essentially you, in all of those situations, you have to get out of your own way. And the easiest way to do that is bring the opposite knee down and use the same side hand to step it forward. Then as soon as you do that, get the fingertips back to the mat and re-straighten your back leg. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you won't even miss a breath. Like once you get the hang of this, it's really quick. It's really simple. And in all of my beginning teachings, I make everyone do this no matter what. So that then the people that need to continue to do it because they can't step that foot all the way forward, continue to do it. Yeah. And I gave you the bolster today. Oh, don't even start. And you're still just I just I gesticulate. <laughs> More than it. You're sort of. You know, us Welsh are. Us, us Welsh are known so for our dramatic presence. Right? Exactly. Yes. And you're Midwesterner, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, just drama presence. I swear, I think you gesticulate more when we record this podcast than I ever see you do well, IRL. It's because I get excited about which things. Which means in real life. Oh, I don't, don't start with that. <laughs> okay, what's the next one? Next one. Jennifer Davis Yoga would love ideas on working with a student who can't straighten his elbows in down dog. She says, I've had some luck getting him to externally rotate his upper arms, but it's still a challenge and the backs of his hands don't rest on the floor in Shavasana. So meaning it's hard for him to straighten his elbows even when he's laying on his back with his arms by his side. Yeah. Yeah. So you imagine someone laying on their back in a normal Shavasana, arms out to the side, 35, 45 degrees or so, and the back of their tricep and elbow are on the ground, but the back of the hand is not. It's elevated, okay? So these two things put together, the restricted mobility in down dog and the elevation of the hand, the back of the hand in Shavasana, tell me it's, it's bicep. It's excess bicep tension. It could also be the muscle that lives underneath the bicep, the coracoid brachialis, that might also be really tight. But essentially, if it was just my student's elbows are not straightening in down dog, there could be a lot of things because there's a lot of factors involved in that weight-bearing type pose. But because she's written both of these things, to me, from a distance, it tells me I'm going to look straight at the biceps. The elbow is staying flexed even in postures where you are to extend the elbow. Right. So it could be one of two things. He needs to engage his triceps more. That's probably not the issue. It's probably not that he needs to strengthen his triceps to overpower his biceps. He probably just has really chronic, tight elbow flexors. Hmm. So stretching that stuff out. Now, here's the thing. There's not a ton of obvious things in yoga that stretch that stuff out, Mm -hmm. okay? So I'm going to describe this, and Andrea's going to take a photo of it, and we'll put it on the show notes page. Okay. But essentially, we'll say you're going to go with your right hip. We'll start on your right side. So you're standing up. Your right hip is a couple inches away from the wall. So you're standing parallel to the wall. You're not facing the wall. Your right hip is facing the wall. Got it. The outside of your right hip. 
And you just reach the right hand straight up as if you're reaching your hand to 12 o'clock on an imaginary wall that is plastic, an imaginary clock on the wall. Right. And you take that hand straight up, palm against the wall, and with your fingers firmly press. Then take a few breaths there and then walk the hand to one o'clock. Take several breaths there, walk the hand to two o'clock. Take several breaths there, walk the hand to three o'clock. Now, that stuff is going to be opening up the front of the shoulder, a little bit the lats as well, pecs, pec minor, all that stuff's going to be open. It's really good shoulder opening, but it's also going to get to the biceps and the muscle, like I said, that lives underneath the biceps. Mm -hmm. That whole complex has to be treated. I would say also that when it comes to Shavasana, if the back of the hands are not in contact with the ground, you want to do one of two things. You either want to support the back of the hands. So the easiest way to do that would be to just slide a block underneath the back of each hand at the wrist. Because if the hand is just sort of hanging there, even if the fingers are down but the back of the wrist is up, it, there's, there's going to be a tension up that chain. But if you elevate the hand a little bit and, and put a block underneath it or a folded blanket or a bolster underneath it, it's going to feel really nice. Yeah. Right? The other thing that you can do is, I know we usually teach Shavasana with the palms up. But in this situation, you could also go elbows that same 45 degrees out to the side, but then just internally rotate the forearms and let the person rest their hands on their belly or their ribs or their hips. Yeah. Because that's not a comfortable position. Right. To be in. Right. It might not be uncomfortable, but it's not It's not going to Supported. facilitate that systemic relaxation in the upper body that you're really looking for. Yeah. The student might not even realize that he's uncomfortable until the arm position is switched or supported. And then he might be like, oh, wow, that feels really good. Because, yeah. you know, you might just totally. acclimate to that. Totally. He's probably acclimated to this. Yeah, there's not a point. He probably doesn't have a point of reference for the relaxation that actually comes when the end of that lever is supported. Right, right. Yeah. And just one like last little thing. If she doesn't want to call attention to it for him during Shavasana, like she could have everyone put their hands on their belly and then, you know. Yeah. And then if you want to extend your arms, you can extend your arms. Yeah, totally. I will say that that stretch that you just described. The is, wall clock thing. was one of my favorite things ever when I've been at the computer for too long. Totally. It feels so, so, so good. There are some other things that we can do on the mat prone, like face down, but they're much more difficult to try to describe here. And the, the errors are really high. The error rate is really high. And there's a lot of load on the shoulder joint. You don't want to, I don't want to describe yeah. something where there's a lot of load on the shoulder joint and it's, it's not clearly expressed. Right. Okay. Yeah. Travel Bug Yogi asks about the anatomy behind lower rib flare, the risks of allowing this to happen, and what can we do to train this pattern out of ours and our students? 
bodies. Yes. This is a different, I, I, when we're looking at questions, I want to address this one, but it's a difficult one to address. It's complex, yeah. And one of the reasons that it's difficult is because I think it's very important to qualify the degree of flare and motion. Because I don't want us to get into a situation where we're so taught to not flare the ribs that, uh, how do I, wait, I'm starting to get backwards. Yeah. Well, it's that the spine is mobile. It's highly mobile. And one of the most mobile parts of the spine is the thoracolumbar junction, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. So I guess the point that I want it, I want to talk around is I think that we need to qualify excess flare or excess extension and unconscious flare and unconscious extension versus intentional and reasonable amount Mm -hmm. of spinal extension. I don't want us to get into the situation where we're afraid to move the spine, where we're afraid to be mobile, where everyone that has the capacity to do a backbend is sort of chased down the street if they have even two degrees of motion at where the ribs intersect with the spine itself, okay? Mm -hmm. The same question comes up around lordosis, Lordosis is a natural, it's just the description of the lumbar curve in the same way that kyphosis is just the the technical description of the thoracic curve. So lordosis and kyphosis are not bad things. They're normal, natural things. What we want to make sure of if we enter into conversations about this is excess, okay? So one of the things to know about the spine is there are transition points. And the transition points are called junctions. And at the junctions, at the transition points, there is greater leverage and there is greater movement potential than in other parts of the spine. That is a good thing. That is a normal thing. That is a healthy thing. That is how the spine has evolved. But we have to be mindful of not being excessive at those junctions. So the first junction of the spine is going from the base up. The first junction of the spine is where the spine and the sacrum come together. So the sacrolumbar junction. Going up, the next junction is where the rib cage, so the thorax, fits on top of the lumbar spine. So it's where the thoracic spine and the lumbar spine come together. This is the thoracolumbar junction. The next significant junction really is where the thoracic spine and the cervical spine come together. So really C7. So it's the bottom of the neck and the top of the ribs. And then the final junction is where the skull and the spine come together at the axis and atlas, okay? So those are the sort of real exciting points for the spine, if you will. When we're talking about rib flare, we're talking about the second junction, largely. We're talking about the potential for excess motion at the top of the lumbar spine and the bottom of the thoracic spine. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the potential downside of excess 
motion and excess rib flare right there. Well, the potential downside is by going too much, too far, and unconsciously at that point that you have the potential of creating excess motion and creating instability at that junction. Mm -hmm. And compression. That's the second thing, which is excess mobility can produce more of a, when you do any sort of backbend, you want to think about it more of an arc and less of a crease, Mm -hmm. more of an arc, less of a fold. So you don't want any one part of the spine, but especially those junction to crease too heavily, to fold too heavily, because that produces or has the potential to produce excess compression. Again, compression is a normal, natural thing, but we don't want excess compression there. Excess compression can create degradation in the structure. And let's let's just keep it at that. It can create structural degradation. So this is one of the reasons that we don't want to glamorize extreme backbends. Mm -hmm. We do all the time, especially in social media, but extreme motion has a potential to compromise structure. Mm-hmm. And when you compromise structure, you're setting up this, yourself for a chronic long-term situation that is not pleasant, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. So when we flare the ribs, to me, I want there to be motion at that junction. I want there to be motion at all the junctions. I don't want there to be disproportionate or excessive motion at that junction. And so that to me is, that's where this is a difficult question because it's really hard to qualify. I have to see it. Can I offer something from a woman's perspective? Totally. Okay. So I notice rib flare more in women than in men. And I I definitely struggle with it myself. And I think Obviously, the most obvious reason is just because women tend to be more mobile than men. So there's more, there's more play in the body. Also, I think that for me, because of the way my weight is distributed, because I have a bust and a behind, when I get really tired, if I, you know, if my back gets tired or if my, if I'm just not feeling strong in my core, it's just a natural place of collapse. In my body, but doesn't when you collapse, don't you collapse backward? I not don't. Forward? Oh, you collapse I do not. forward. I never collapse backward. Oh, in fact, okay. it was something that I learned, and, and I'm very naturally lordotic, so that might be why I collapse forward more into lordosis, and yeah. then my upper back collapses, sometimes collapses back into kypho- into more kyphosis. But like, look at me right now. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, this is not a good posture, but I'm naturally kind of jetting my ribs forward. So for me, what made a big difference was honestly thinking of core and back strength equally Mm -hmm. all the time. And also literally just envisioning lifting up out of my pelvis. Yeah. It's kind of like when I'm tired, I naturally sink more Mm -hmm. and that junction you know, takes more weight and more compression. And when I'm more active, more engaged, I'm feeling more like I'm lifting out of myself. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that sort of core height. Yeah. Something I talk about a lot in classes is just core strength. It's core height. It's core lift. Yeah. 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 So so I want to sort of stab one more thing into here and try and sum up from, from sort of what I was trying to articulate earlier, which is 
what we have to look at is if we're going to talk about rib flare, I think what we have to look at is the pelvis, the lower spine, the ribs, the whole spine. We have to look at everything in its entirety. And we have to see, to me, I would only say that the ribs are flaring if that junction was moving excess in one direction relative to the other parts of the spine. If the front of the pelvis is lifting and someone's doing a backbend, if there is a commensurate curve everywhere and the ribs are part of that and the lower ribs are part of that, then I'm not going to see it as a problem. I'm going to see it as integrated mobility. It's only when that part is excessively moving forward relative to the other parts that I see it as a dissonance and a and a problem to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. I, th- I think that's as well as we can we can take this this work in this context. Yeah, it might be a good seedling for a blog post. A yeah, longer totally. Blog post. Okay, last question. I've heard many teachers cue tuck the tailbone under in Utkatasana, Viratu, and Tadasana. This doesn't feel right in my body. My personal practice and newer research advise lengthening tailbone to the heels. How do you feel about the tuck under cue? I think the problem with the tuck under cue is just like the how I answered the last question, which is tuck under to me implies too much. Tuck or lengthen I don't have a problem with, depending on the posture, but it's the under that's a problem. Because when you're adding under, what I'm envisioning right now is sort of a a dog that's embarrassed. A scoop. Here's what it is, is that the under connotes that the pelvic, that the pelvis is actually rotating backwards on the femurs. Is that the tuck under, you, you never want to tuck under so much that the pelvis is in posterior tilt. And the under part, I think, is problematic. So the way that she's phrased this out, lengthening tailbone towards heels. To me, that works, but that to me is only necessary in postures that require it. So for example, there are several postures where the nature of the posture is exerting a lot of pull on the front of the thighs and the front of the pelvis, the quads and the hip flexors. And it's going to exert so much pull that the pelvic rim tends to anteriorly tilt too much and the lower back tends to excessively compress and sway. And this would be the situation where we want to lengthen the tailbone down or lengthen the sacrum. I actually think using the phrase, using the word sacrum is probably more accurate than tailbone. So lengthening the sacrum towards the inner thighs or lengthening the sacrum down towards the inner heels. That then is the counterforce to help the pelvis not be pulled too far forward mm-hmm. in a pose. Like warrior one or, or crescent lunge. So if let's, this is the easier to figure out. So I'm in a crescent lunge. My left foot is forward. My right leg is back. If you look at 99 out of 100 students doing crescent lunge, I guarantee their pelvic rim is overly tilted forward. It's overly anteriorly rotated because of the way that pose is tensioning the hip flexors and quads on the side that's stepped back. And so that would be a good situation to give the cue of lengthening the sacrum down 
Or my preference is to go the opposite direction, which is to lift the hip points up. I don't actually tell people to lengthen the back part of their pelvis down, although I don't dispute it. Mm-hmm. Instead, I ask people to lift the front part of their pelvis up. But I would never want someone to lift the front part of their pelvis up so much that the lower back and the pelvis were rotated backwards. Right. Is that sensible? Right. Which in, in crescent lunge would be really impossible to do, wouldn't it? If you, yes, really hard to do. I mean, it would... It'd be really <laughs> unlikely that you could rotate the pelvis too far back. Right. In crescent But lunge. in Tadasana, you in could Tadasana, easily... there's To me, in Tadasana, I just wouldn't give the cue. Okay. There's mm-hmm. no point in giving the cue as like a default cue. Yeah. Unless it's being coupled with other things. Unidirectional actions in neutral poses, they don't have any value unless they're the op... Instruction should be given in pairs, mm-hmm. especially in a neutral pose like Tadasana. There's no reason in Tadasana to tell everyone to do one thing with the pelvis, unless you're also giving them a counterbalancing cue. So you might tell them to internally rotate the femurs while lengthening the tailbone or sacrum down. Because the internal rotation of the femurs tilts the pelvic rim forward. And then lengthening the sacrum down counterbalances that. Mm-hmm. But there'd be no point in just in Tadasana telling people to tuck the tailbone. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So the, here's the bottom line. Keep the curve of the lower back. And where is the curve of the lower back established? It's established in the position of your pelvis. So you don't want to be in a situation where you are tucking the tailbone or lengthening the sacrum so much that you are rotating the pelvis too far backwards and rounding your back the wrong direction. You want to keep that natural curve. Yeah. But there are plenty of poses where you're going to have to lift the hip points and lengthen the sacrum or else the pelvic rim is going to be tilted too far forward over the thighs. Mm -hmm. Too much, too much curve. Yeah. It's all about finding the balance. All right. Well, let's stop there for today. Yeah, you got it. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can find show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 86. I am eking ever closer to episode 100, where we're going to have, I don't know, a yogi jump out of a cake or something. I have to think about that. Anyway, until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.